invite you, if you have a Bible, to open it to Ephesians chapter 2. You'll find the notes this morning's message in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find the text this morning's message on the back of the notes. And this morning we'll begin part 3 of a look at Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. Uh, we meant to get through all this material last week, but uh, there was just so much there that I was unable to do so. I'll remind you that the division of the book of Ephesians, there are six chapters, the first three primarily dealing with doctrine, what is, what has been done, what is true, and then the second half dealing with how to live in light of that duty. You could, you could divide it one to three doctrine, four to six duty. You could think of it in the uh, mood of the verbs. We have indicative verbs, verbs telling you things that are, and then we have imperative verbs telling you what to do in the second half. You can divide it up any number of ways. And within that first half, chapter one is comprised of pretty much three things, a brief greeting, a long benediction, a praise giving to God, and then a pastoral prayer, prayer ultimately that the Ephesian church might grasp through spiritual power three things, the hope of their calling, the riches of their inheritance, and the great power of God at work towards them. That then becomes the link to chapter two, and chapter two is made up of two Great contrasts. In verses 1 to 10, we have the contrast, the before and after contrast of our individual situation and plight before God. We were dead in our trespasses. We were walking in sin and the desires of the flesh according to the prince of this world. We were children of wrath. And we get that wonderful solution to that problem in verse 4, but God, and God's solution to our problem is he resurrected us, and he raised us, and he seated us with Christ, and he fashioned us anew for good works. That was the solution to our individual problem. Our next contrast, verses 11 to 22, is no longer individual as much as corporate we saw that in the, in the first verse. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles, he's talking about a specifically Gentile problem, which I think speaks for most of us in this room, is the corporate problem of Gentiles, a problem we don't give much consideration to. We're so used to, in our day and age, and this side of the cross, thinking in individualistic terms of salvation that the thought of, oh, wait a second, I'm a Gentile probably doesn't enter into our thinking, but Paul wants us to understand the great lengths what God has done to remedy that problem. So let's read this second great contrast, Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. Look at the problem and look at God's glorious solution that he has made and that he proclaims to us peace. Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so 
making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Lord God, give us eyes to see the wonders and the glories of what you have done for us. Help us both to see our predicament and plight, your wonderful solution, and what you intend for us and how we ought to live in light of it. We thank you that you've taken down the dividing wall. We thank you that there is a hope for Gentiles like us, that you have brought us near, that you have preached and spoken peace to us, you have brought us into your body, into your household, that we are fellow citizens with the saints. What wondrous news is this. In Jesus' name, amen. So our problem in the first great contrast, verses 1 to 10, is that we were dead, we were enslaved, and we were by nature children of wrath. And, and God's solution to that individual problem before him is we were dead, he, he makes us alive, he resurrects us with Christ. We were enslaved to the powers of this world and our flesh, well, he has raised us above them. We were children of wrath, we're destined now for rule. And his purpose in doing that, in both of these, you're going to see this progression. Here's the problem, here's the solution, and here's the intention. What he intends now as a result of that. And and we see that at the end of of verse 10. Remember, the problem is seen in verses 1 and 2. We were walking a certain way. We were walking dead men. We were walking dead. Now, for we are his workmanship and created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He has done these things in us and for us that we might walk anew in a different way. That's going to be Paul's metaphor that he uses in the second half of the book. Walk this way, not that way. Walk as children of light. Walk in love. Walk in a worthy manner. Don't walk as the Gentiles. So that notion of walking, how you conduct yourself throughout the day, is what Paul's going to use to organize the content in the second half of the epistle. So he makes it clear God did not just do all these things for us simply to help us escape hell. He did, he did also that we might have a new walk to walk in. And we're going to see that same progression here. We're going to see the problem, the solution, and then we're going to start getting into today into some intentionality. What is purpose? He has a plan. He has a goal for this. So the problem that we looked at over the last two weeks primarily, uh, again, are things we don't generally consider. They're, they're issues of race and tribalism. We, he addresses you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, but what is called the circumcision. Even there, he's putting his finger on racial hostility. And Paul, I think in doing this, wants to distinguish himself from the self-righteous Jews of his day. There was a self-righteous and wrong racism between the Jews and the Gentiles. 
We see that in the Gospels where the Pharisees were not Gentile sinners. They thought they were better than. But make no mistake, there was a righteous in the Old Testament distinction. So that David, when he faces off against Goliath, can say, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who blasphemes the armies of the living God? There is a real dividing wall. And so Paul identifies five problems as Gentiles we had. We see them in verse 12. Remember, at that time, you were separated from Christ. Jesus, newsflash, is a Jewish Messiah. We were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Now, prior to this, in the Old Testament, the Gentiles could come and be saved. They could come and become part of Israel. But as they convert... They stop being Gentiles. Rahab's no longer a Canaanite from Jericho. She's part of the Messianic line. She's welcomed in, but now she's part of the body politic of Israel. You can't remain a Gentile and be part of the people of God, not in the Old Covenant. Strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So that was our position as Gentiles, we, we had no Messiah, we had no people, we had no covenants and promises, we had no hope, and we had no God. And we got another of these, but now, we learned what, what Christ has done. And that's where we're beginning to look at now. We, we got into the first half of this last week, we'll try to finish the second half of this middle section this week. So pick it up with me in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now, peace is what dominates this, this middle paragraph. Last week, the title of the message was, He himself is our peace. This week, we're looking at making and proclaiming peace. But you see it five times in our text. Verse 14, he himself is our peace. Verse 15, making peace. Verse 17, he came and preached peace. He came to those who are far off, um, and to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. And if you bring in the cognates, the opposite notions, the antonyms of hostility, and the, the synonym of reconciliation, the notion of peace and lack of peace and being reconciled, that's what dominates this. And we're so often thinking of reconciliation vertically, and it's, it's here, but I think forefront of Paul's mind is the horizontal reconciliation that the Jews and the Gentiles have. And I've argued in the past, and I'll argue this morning, that if God can can make peace between a racial divide that he himself instituted, that is real, that is objective, that isn't a matter of bigotry, but of reality. If he can remove that, if he can make peace, then, then how much more can Christ's death on the cross make peace for us, for our, our man-made subjective divides? That's the argument. So we're looking at primarily in the first instance of Jew and Gentile, but I want you to understand, if, if Christ's death on the cross can remove the hostility between Jew and Gentile, and there's a real hostility there, then Christ's death on the cross can remove the hostility of, of any lesser divide that we have made, any prejudices that we have. So what we see here in our first point, verse 15b, is that he has made peace for us. He has made peace for us. We came out of last week looking at what Christ did was on the cross, he fulfilled the law, and according to this passage, radical statement, he abolished, verse 15, the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. 
And then we get to his purpose statements, that he might create in himself, and then verse 16, and might reconcile. So that's where we're picking up. We ended last week, Christ was able to make peace by abolishing the law of commandments, the, the Mosaic law that created the divide so that Daniel in Babylon has to separate himself and his, and his countrymen out from the rest of the eunuchs in the, in the care of the chief of the eunuchs, precisely because of his, he's trying to be faithful to the Mosaic covenant. He can't eat what they eat. He can't do what they do. There's a divide implicit there. That's been removed now. The book of Acts shows the church wrestling with this question. Do the the Gentiles need to be circumcised? Do the Gentiles need to keep the law? And in Acts 15 in the Jerusalem Council, no, they do not. That's what Paul is declaring here. The the law and its requirements has been removed. There can now be peace. But now we're going to get to the, the so what. And so the first is this. By creating in himself one new man. One new man. He might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So here's, here's the, the thing to grasp. It's not, not that he's made the Gentiles Jews. Some people think that today. We're all Jews. We're all Israel. Nope. The Gentiles don't become Jews. The Jews don't become Gentiles. Both Jew and Gentile become something new. They become Christians. They become part of the church his body. Don't miss that. It's not, well, you know what? The Gentiles are welcome to be part of the Jews too. No, he's taken them both and made one new thing. One new thing that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. Who are the two? Jew and Gentile. That's why Paul can say in Galatians, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. They're Christians. We saw saw that last week in in 1 Corinthians 9 where Paul says, well, to the Jews, I can become like a Jew. To the Gentiles, I can become like a Gentile. And you anticipate someone saying, but Paul, you are a Jew. You're of the tribe of Benjamin. Well, no, I'm a Christian now. First and foremost, Paul identifies himself not with his ethnic background, his tribal background, but as a Christian. And so God has created in himself one new man, something new. That's the mystery Paul's going to speak of in chapter 3 of Ephesians. So don't miss that. One in place of two, and in doing that, making peace between them. I believe the peace he speaks of here in verse 15 is peace horizontally between Jew and Gentile. So, So here's the rationale. We all come to the table with different backgrounds, coming from different tribes and nations and continents and political affiliations. We live in a day rampant with tribalism and causes that can put us in in hostility with each other. Whatever those things are, are left behind, we're made something new in place of the one or the two, Jew or Gentile in this instance, and something new is in its place. And those things, therefore, get left behind. And that's the basis of the peace. Now, Paul, this doesn't eradicate Paul's Jewishness. In Romans 9, Paul can say, I've got great distress and and, and concern for my countrymen according to the flesh. But first and foremost, Paul's a Christian. And this means, then, that first and foremost, I share a fellowship and a commonality with other believers that trumps even my own family. I mean, Jesus modeled this, right? Your mother and your brothers are outside. Who is my mother? Who is my brother? But he who keeps the commandments of God. 
It, it, it trumps my, my political or my national affiliation. I have more in common with an Iranian Christian believer than I do with my patriotic, flags flying, unbelieving neighbor down the street. We have a union in Christ that is more profound. It's more fundamental. That, that's the point here. And so this, this has, I think, two big implications then for us. One is that means in the body of Christ and for Christians, there can be no room for racial conflict and prejudices. We're something new. Those things, am I a Gentile anymore? No, I'm a Christian. Am I a Jew anymore? No, I'm a Christian. You can't bring those things through. The early church was not comprised of Christians getting together, airing out their complaints. The Jews complaining to the Roman Christians about the atrocities done by Rome. The Romans complaining about, you know, my grandfather was killed in the revolt under Judas Maccabees. No, they understand that that hostility and the hostility implicit in the law has been removed. The dividing wall has been torn down. In Christ's death on the cross, wrongs have been righted and something new has been made. He has created for himself a new man, one in place of two, making peace between them. I want you to notice something else here. God's provision for our need is a new creation. It's not a renovation. It's a new creation. It's a new act of creation. We saw that also in our last contrast. Look at verse 10 again. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. So part, another one of the similarities of these two contrasts is we learn in the first contrast, God has not simply come along and massaged us and you know, fixed us up a little bit and, and cleaned us off a little bit. He, he's made something new. He resurrected dead people. He raised them and he seated them. And in a very real sense, he has recreated and fashioned us in Christ. Here, again, he's not given a pep talk to the Jews and the Gentiles and told them, can't we all get along? He's created something new. And it's an act of creation on God's part that solves the problem. And we need to understand and own that. If you're a Christian today... You have been recreated in Christ. You've been made something new. God has placed you into his body. And we need to be willing to live in light of that reality. This is, this is in really needed for our day and age when we get so caught up. You're not a Republican Christian. You're a Christian who might be a Republican or a Democrat. You're not, you're not a Palestinian or a Jewish Christian. You're a Christian who may be Palestinian or Jewish. Cyclone or Hawkeye. No, you're a Christian. First, black, white, European, Asian, these things still have a place in our heritage. We're Christians first and foremost. Christ has unified us first and foremost. And then, at a distant second, are all those other issues that we have. Uh, If there are issues ongoing in our body, we need to deal with them. But for issues of the past, we look to Christ's work on the cross and we see that he has made peace for us. Okay? So that's the first point. Creating in himself one new man. Christ did this. Christ died on the cross. He abolished the law that he might create a new man. Then we get to the second might in verse 16. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. By reconciling us both to God. And here I think Paul has both a horizontal and vertical idea here for reconciliation. This may be strange for us to think, but I remember when we first introduced the song, um, uh, Arise, My Soul, Arise. You guys know that song? 
The last verse says, what my God is reconciled. And I had at least two people say, that's an odd expression. I think it comes out of here. Understand in a very real sense, God was your enemy. Like he was hostile. You had made him hostile. Now he's your enemy. He's reaching out in peace, but he is provoked, prepared to deal wrath. We were children of wrath. We're under his wrath. There's a need for peace. And Christ has made it. He has reconciled us to God. God and uh, we are reconciled together in the cross of Christ by reconciling us both to God. Now notice the three phrases, in one body, through the cross, and killing the hostility. So, by reconciling us both to God in one body. And so the emphasis here is this. He is both accomplishing both at the same time. He's reconciling us to God, but he's doing it as a unified group. And again, we're so often thinking, and there's, and there's absolutely truth in thinking of individual reconciliation and my personal relationship with Jesus, but there's also a corporate reconciliation. There's another real sense in which nobody is reconciled who's not reconciled as part of Christ's church, part of his body, corporate there, there is nobody who is saved who's not saved as a part of Christ's body. And, that, and that's the emphasis he's making here. He's brought us both into his body. He's made us both one new man, his body. And as his body, he's reconciling us to the Father together. In one body, he's reconciled us both. He might create in himself a new man, one in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body. In what condition does he reconcile us both to God in one body? Then we get the agency. How? Through the cross. Jesus' death on the cross accomplishes both acts of reconciliation. On On the cross, Jesus satisfies the just requirements of the law. On the cross, Jesus absorbs all of the Father's anger and wrath at our sin. He is our substitute. He stands in our place. And peace can be made between us and the Father. And in so doing and fulfilling the law, as Romans 10.4 can say, Christ is the end of the law, the dividing wall can be taken down, making peace for us. This is, again, what I mean when I say that on the cross and what God is doing in the gospel is far greater and far more than we are often thinking of. Have you ever considered that on the Christ... On the cross, Christ is also creating the unity between Jew and Gentile, removing the dividing wall of hostility. He's also accomplishing that as well. Because that's what Paul's saying here. That he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. And thereby killing the hostility. Killing the hostility. Again, abolishing the law accomplishes both the hostility to God, but also the hostility we saw at the end of verse 14, the horizontal hostility. He has torn down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, the wall that divided and created hostility between Jew and Gentile. All that is accomplished on the cross. It's amazing. It's wonderful. Killing the hostility. And so in the early church, Jews... And Roman centurions can worship side by side. In the early church, zealots, who are the equivalent of domestic terrorists trying to overthrow Rome, and tax collectors like Matthew are worshiping side by side. Slaves and free, male and female, Jew and Greek, 
because Christ really and truly has made something new and Christ really and truly has created a real and true peace. He, is, he himself is our peace, we saw last week, because he has made for us peace. Okay? It's the end of verse 17, 16, I mean. Now let's look at 17 and 18. So he is our peace, verse 14. He has made peace for us, verse 15. And then in 17 and 18, he declares, he proclaims to us peace. Look at 17 and 18. He came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This, this is, again, wonderful news. Um, Paul is, is summarizing a portion of what Christ did on earth. And again, Jesus accomplished so much in his life. Um, he came, there's the baby who came born to die on the cross. But also in his ministry, he, he preached and proclaimed peace. T- turning your Bibles to, to Luke 4. Um, you remember a few years ago in Luke 4. I do, at least. Um, and one of the pivotal moments in Luke is in chapter 4. It's when Jesus officially enters his public ministry. Officially, he's come back from the wilderness and he goes to his hometown, verse 16. He came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it's written. And here, he's about to tell us his, his messianic mission. He's going to identify himself as who this text is speaking about and the, the ministry given to the servant of the Lord in this text in Isaiah. He's going to say it's his ministry. Listen to how Jesus, to his hometown audience, identifies his ministry. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Anointed is English for the Hebrew messiah, for the Greek, Christos, Christ. To proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And we, when we studied that, we saw that there are two elements in here. There's a proclamation and an accomplishment. He was to proclaim things, and he was to set at liberty. He was actually to free them. So he was to declare their freedom and accomplish their freedom. I just want to focus here on the, as Paul speaks of Jesus came in preaching peace. This is Jesus preaching peace. He's doing it to his hometown. Now, when they understand the implications of peace, because the part of the gospel that offends is we need saving. This is why those are the parts that tend to fall off first. The part of the gospel that God loves you is absolutely true. Amen. Hallelujah. That usually sticks around. And Jesus came for you and he died for you. Those all remain. But the part of the message that usually people find offensive, they found it offensive in Jesus' day, is your sin is so great And your condition is so terrible that nothing short of the death of the Son of God will do for God to not destroy you and obliterate you in his wrath. But God loves you and he sent his Son to stand in your place that if you would trust in him, you could be forgiven and received. When the Jews of Jesus' hometown understood that implicit in his proclamation is him telling them, you're blind, but I'm here to give you sight. You're slaves, but I'm here to free you. You're lame, but I'm here to make you well. When they understood that, they tried to kill him. But he came and preached peace. And in his ministry on earth, he, he, he preached peace not just to those who were near, but to those who were far. 
both in the society of Israel, whether it's the leper who's an outcast, unclean, whether it's to flat out Greeks crossing the sea, going to the Decapolis, the demoniac, the Roman centurion, or if you turn in Luke a little further to chapter um, 18, This is maybe a little more recent history, probably 2018 when we were here. But who can forget the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector? Luke 18, 9, he told them this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed, thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. Um, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. So Jesus preached peace to those who were near and those who were far, Jesus had time for the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, what they needed was correction. What they needed was rebuke. What they needed was not uh, massaging, but confrontation to break them out of their legalistic error. But Jesus had time for them. He loved them enough to speak the truth to them. He preached peace to them. And we have some notable examples of Pharisees coming to faith. And he preached peace, especially in Luke's gospel, we see this emphasized a lot to those who are far, the tax collectors, the sinners. He's welcoming them to his table. That's that's a wonderful summary of Jesus' ministry. He proclaimed peace to both far and near. And again, I just want to pause and say, I don't care how far you think you are from God or how close you think you are to, to God. You need the peace that Christ offers. It makes no difference. How close you think you are, how good you think you are, you need the peace he offers. And it doesn't matter how far you are in the things you've done, you need the peace that Christ alone offers. This is borrowing off of an Old Testament passage in Isaiah again. Um, Isaiah 57, 18 and 19. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore Comfort to him in his mourners, creating the fruit of his lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. So even here, Paul is linking Jesus in this prophetic Old Testament prediction of what the Messiah will do when he comes. God's heart to people such as you and I. Isaiah 52, 7, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes Peace who brings good news of happiness. You know, Paul also will speak of the gospel as the gospel of peace, the good news of peace. So what he means by that is you can have peace with God. Here is how you can have peace with God. He proclaimed peace. There is peace available, free. Come with no money and, and receive peace. If you will turn to Christ from whatever else you're serving and worshiping, if you will turn and trust in Jesus, You can have peace with God. You can have peace with your fellow man. You can have peace in his body. He proclaimed that in his ministry, and today his people, his body, his church proclaims that even now. And so I just want to pause and invite you. There's free peace for you if you'd have it. God, God would be your friend. He would be at peace with you. And then he goes on to end this section 
with um, a declaration of the access we have in Christ. And I want you to note that it's Trinitarian in nature. Verse 18. What type of peace are we talking about? And here, the peace has shifted to primarily a vertical peace. He's proclaimed this peace to those who are far. He's proclaimed peace to those who are near. Because or for, through him, this is what he means by peace. Through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. It's not primarily financial peace, relational peace. This is the peace that comes, you get access to the Father. You were formerly a child of wrath. Now you get access to a God you get to call Dad. And so let's just quickly look at the Trinitarian nature of this. We both have access, both Jew and Greek. Notice the emphasis there for, for um, through him we both, so he's still emphasizing this unity, Jew and Gentile, in this new body, Jew and Gentile, in this new man that he's created. We both have access in one spirit. Through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So we both have access through Jesus Christ. Why don't you get the prepositions here? Through Jesus Christ. This is agency or mediatory nature. How? He's our blank mediator. He's our mediator. And if that's a big word, what I mean by that is just what Jesus says in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the mediator. He's the bridge. If you want another word picture. Through Jesus. And what we mean by that, and the second point, is his death is the basis. Through Jesus' death on our behalf, we have access to God. Through the agency, through the means of his sacrificial death, you and I have access. Point C, we have both have access in the Holy Spirit. So through Christ, but in the Holy Spirit. And we've already seen the Spirit is the member of the Trinity who unites us by faith, with Christ by faith. Look, look back at chapter 1 of Ephesians, where Paul's already made that clear, verse 13 and 14. In him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So the Holy Spirit... It's the member of the Trinity who unites us by faith to Christ. So when we're in, in the Spirit, we learn elsewhere in Romans that the Spirit himself helps us pray on our end as we approach God's throne. The Spirit is in us, with us, helping us, testifying that we are sons and daughters of God. So our approach to God in prayer, our approach to the throne of the Creator is through the work of Christ in the Spirit who unites us with faith with Christ by faith, and also who unites us horizontally in peace. Turn over to chapter 4 of Ephesians. The Spirit, in the Spirit we have peace with God. We also have peace with one another. And I I just want to show you how Paul will begin to make application of these truths in chapter 4. Look at verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to, oh look, walk. In a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Because he wants us earlier to know the greatness of the hope of our calling. 
Now he wants us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity, or dare I say peace, of the spirit in the bond of peace. So in the spirit, we have access to the Father. In the spirit, we have peace with the Father. And the spirit also gives us peace horizontally. And we're to maintain. We don't create peace. We maintain the peace that the spirit has created. That's, That's Paul's thinking there. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. We both have access in the Holy Spirit. The spirit unites us with Christ by faith, and the Spirit unites us together in peace. That's, that's the thinking we have. And then notice the two. So the through, the in, and the two. We both have access to God the Father. And again, this is something we take so for granted. We're so used to, well, of course I have access to God. Why wouldn't God want to talk to someone wonderful like me? That's what we're tempted to think. But he's emphasized, we were far off. We weren't near. We had no Christ. We had no people. We had no covenants. We had no hope. We had no God in this world. And even for Israel, Jesus teaching his disciples to pray, addressing God as Father, was a radical new development. Israel, corporately, could call God Father. You have been a father to us. Solomon can say the temple dedication but I'm not aware of any individual Old Testament Jewish person calling God Father. We've been adopted in the New Covenant, and and, and Paul's emphasized that as well. Look back again to chapter 1. Don't don't take these things for granted, beloved. Don't don't take these things for granted. Marvel at the grace. Look at verse 6. I mean 5. He predestined us, of chapter 1, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. We therefore have an inheritance. What was the problem that we had in our first contrast? Look at verse 3. Among whom we were all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature, what type of children? Beloved sons and daughters? No, we were by nature children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind, a radical change has occurred when you and I go from being children of wrath to access to a God we now call Father. That that takes every member of the Trinity at work to make this new reality possible. Christ's death, it's through his death that we have access. It's in the Spirit and in the Spirit alone that we have access. But the access we have is to the Father. To a God that is no longer a stern, angry judge, but a loving father who gives us an inheritance, who chooses us and embraces us as his sons and daughters. We're no longer children of wrath, point two, but adopted sons and daughters. Adopted sons and daughters. We have time. Turn turn over to Romans 8 briefly. We'll close out here um, before our final song. This is such a glorious truth. Um, Keep in mind our former condition. Keep in mind what Paul said about our former condition. And look at what Paul says to the Christians in Rome. The largely Gentile Christians in Rome. In Romans 
chapter 8, starting in verse 12. No, no, starting in verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. If you did not receive the spirit of slavery, to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is what God is accomplishing in the gospel. He has removed the penalty of your sin. You and I need not fear hell. We can have a hope of going to heaven. But we also have an immediate and real peace horizontally with each other. And we also have now an access to the Father through Christ in the Spirit that we never had before. Don't miss these things either. These are all the blessings of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself is our peace, and he has made for us peace, and he proclaims and offers to us peace.